this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to another edition of the in focus podcast i'm your host dee sampat taiwan has for long been a flashpoint in us china relations the visit to taiwan by us house of representatives speaker nancy pelosi has once again raised tensions between the us and china Despite China making its displeasure clear in the strongest terms, Pelosi landed in Taiwan on Tuesday this week, and China has condemned her visit as, within quotes, extremely dangerous. It has also launched some aggressive military drills that encroach on Taiwan's territorial waters. The Communist Party of China has made no secret of its intention to integrate Taiwan with the People's Republic of China, and the U.S. while formally claiming to respect the one china policy has said that it will respond militarily or at least indicated as much if china tried to annex taiwan or invade taiwan but with china aspiring to achieve if not surpass military parity with the us can the equilibrium of the past decades continue to hold how long can taiwan continue as a self governing island democracy We explore these questions and more in this episode of the InFocus podcast, and our guest today is Anand Krishnan, the Hindu's China correspondent. Anand, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Sampat. Anand, to start with, can you just explain quickly why did Nancy Pelosi want to visit Taiwan? She is not a member of the Biden administration. She could not be signing any bilateral treaties or whatever. So, what was the reason for this visit, given that? it has so many massive risks involved in it i think that tampad nancy pelosi has spelled out why she wanted to go both when she was in taiwan and she addressed the legislature on august 3rd and she also wrote an op-ed about it this week to explain why she went and pretty much what she wants to convey through this visit is that she wants to show solidarity with taiwan and as she put it i think it's in keeping with her world view which is as she said standing on the side of democracies versus autocracies and i think that a lot of this the way i see it seems to be this entire visit seems to be driven by her personally and i think people who followed nancy pelosi know that she's been quite consistent over the last many decades i think she's 82 years old over the last many decades in in sort of standing or expressing support for certain values and foreign policy i think there's a larger debate of course on whether the us foreign policy actually does espouse those values but as far as china is concerned you had pelosi speak out about hong kong you've had her speak out about tibet and xinjiang and even as far as india is concerned sampat i think was just a year ago or two years ago she spoke out about the situation involving the condition of muslims in india so she's been quite outspoken as a member of the, of the democratic party and as a member of the senate and as a influential us politician for many many years now but i think in terms of the context of this visit a little bit of background is that you have had members of us congress lead delegations to taiwan pretty much every year or multiple times a year and but what you have not had is high level engagement or direct contact between the executive that is the white house and the administration with taiwan so the argument that the us makes is that these visits do not sort of really contradict or undermine the obligations to china because these are done by a separate branch of government and their argument that 
It was also conveyed by President Biden to President Xi Jinping when they spoke on July 28th is that the White House can't tell members of Congress what to do. That's how their sort of division of powers works. So to put, to put it very briefly, the way I see it, Sampath, it's a visit that's been driven by her, I think, much less than one that really was driven by either the Biden administration or one that reflects, in my view, a big change in the U.S. approach to the Taiwan question. Right. So if you were, say, China, say, if you're China or whichever other country, and if you're looking at American foreign policy, are you then expected to take cognizance of two different foreign policies, depending on whether it is coming from the White House or some another person who is not from the administration? I mean, if you if, if Pelosi is visiting Taiwan, I mean, it is the the state's 20 fighters, it's a whatever that escorted her, right? Like, how do you like separate these two aspects of American footprints around the globe? That's exactly what the Chinese foreign ministry said this week, saying that you can't have two American foreign policies. And they, of course, pointed to the fact that she was, of course, flew in a military jet and so on. I think there's a little bit of embarrassment as far as the Biden administration is concerned, especially because that argument, I think, would have been more acceptable if, say, she was from a Republican. She was a Republican politician. I think what makes that argument much less hard to digest is obviously they're from the same party. She stands with Biden on every issue. So ostensibly, if Biden really didn't want her to go, it's hard to imagine that she would still go, given that their party already, as you know, has enough problems of their own making as they face midterm elections this year. So I think that argument hasn't really been accepted in China. And to a certain degree, Sampath, in India-US relations as well, we've come across this where you've had members of Congress introducing various bills or criticizing India or criticizing uh, the religious situation in India. And that's something Delhi reacts to, even if many of these sort of statements don't actually have any significant impact on the conduct of India-US bilateral relations. But at the same time, India does feel obligated to respond to this because you have this coming from prominent US politicians. You have to respond. Now, I think China was faced with two options, which was either you say, I think Biden was trying to give Xi Jinping a way out in their phone call by he Biden initiated the phone call last week before the visit went ahead. And he pretty much reaffirmed his government's commitment to the one China policy. And he said that is unchanged. So China pretty much had two options could have highlighted Biden's reaffirmation of the one China policy and played this down as part of Pelosi's long tradition of what Beijing sees as China baiting. That's one option they could have followed. But I think that's very interesting why they chose the second option, which was to pretty much blame Washington and Biden for this visit and to send a very clear signal to the US, to Taiwan, and I think some to the world that at this moment of time, they will not take lying down any sort of challenges to what they see as their core interests. And I think that's the big takeaway from how they've chosen to react. Right. But in, in, in taking this second option that you've outlined in terms of publicly issuing such strong uh, warnings, etc., haven't they, in a sense, sort of hasn't it back a backfired? Because they've, by, by going public with their opposition so uh, in such aggressive terms, they've made it impossible for the US to back down. Now that it's out there, it looked like they're giving in to Chinese bullying, right? So the visit was going to happen once you come out and oppose it publicly in this fashion. No, I completely agree with uh, what you just said. And that's why I've been wondering why they chose to do that. Uh, because I think the minute they publicly made clear their warnings, 
that they would not want Pelosi to go and they would take steps. They left this vague. I think the minute they made those public warnings, I think there was no way she was going to back out of the visit. And if she did back out of the visit after China made public statements, I think that the Republicans would have hammered this home uh, and shown this as Biden's weakness, uh, even though, ironically, the entire visit didn't really come from the Biden administration. But I think once they made those warnings, I thought the die was cast and she was definitely going to go. And I think that it has left China on a sticky wicket at this moment in time because of the fact that on August 3rd, the day that uh, Pelosi was in Taipei and met President Tsai Ing-wen, there were lots of comments on Chinese social media saying that, well, you made all these warnings, so what exactly are you going to do now when your warnings fail to deter her from going? What is it that you're going to do to protect China's sovereignty and territorial integrity? These are questions I'm sure they did not want to be aired by people in China. And you also had, I think, because of those warnings, I think you had semi-official people in China, like Hu Xijin, the famous uh, Global Times former editor-in-chief, he put a tweet saying that China should shoot down her plane. This was never going to happen. But because the government made those public warnings to deter her, it sort of gave the signal for everyone to kind of jump in in China and say, you know, they're never going to let her go. They're going to shoot her plane down as far-fetched as all of this is. So as a result of that, now I think China has put itself in a corner where it has to take extraordinary steps for two reasons, Sampath. I think one, to deter any other country from sending high-level delegations to Taiwan. And, uh, and, to, and two, to send a signal to people in China, obviously, that they are going to take measures. And I think to also discourage Taiwan in the future uh, from extending invitations or hosting high-level visits from abroad. And that's why I think you're seeing these military drills. We can talk about that more, which start, uh, which started at noon on August 4th, Beijing time, which I think are quite unprecedented in scale and are pretty much an effective temporary blockade of, chi- of, Ty- of Taiwan's waters and airspace. So I think they put themselves in a corner by making that public warning. I think they knew it was highly unlikely that Pelosi was going to buckle once they made those warnings, which is why I found it an interesting strategy that I think has raised the stakes for Xi Jinping, as well as narrowed uh, China's options in dealing with this. Right. So you spoke about those three kinds of messages or signals that China would want to send out. One is, of course, to deter any further high-level visits and one, of course, to send a message to its domestic audience. So how, so coming, the, the visit happening despite all these warnings from China and the reactions, how would you characterize China's response post the Pelosi visit? I mean, not just the rhetoric, uh, which was very strong, but also the military response, the nature of the drills. You say you spoke about a, almost a de facto blockade. So is is all this as much as what had been expected or is it less than what it had warned of? From everyone I've spoken to, and I don't mean in Beijing, but people who follow China, international observers of China, I think they were surprised by the scale of the military drills that, that began on August 4th. Uh, and they thought it was much bigger than what they had imagined because it's something that they've never done before. Uh, what they have announced is they're carrying uh, simultaneous drills in six areas all around uh, the island of Taiwan to the northwest, south, and east. And these are big chunks of water, of ter- of including uh, parts of territorial waters as Taiwan would see it, and big chunks of airspace that are going to have a huge disruption on shipping and aviation until these drills conclude on Sunday evening. So I think that these are bigger in scope and scale than most people, I think, 
had expected. And one lasting legacy could be, as we've seen in how China has handled what it sees as threats to its sovereignty in the South China Sea. We've seen in how China has changed closer to home, Sampath. We've seen how China has changed its deployments along the line of actual control. I think there's a sense that you could see a permanent change in China's military deployments vis-a-vis Taiwan, which would mean more frequent aerial intrusions into into Taiwan's air defense identification zone, more frequent exercises held, including in what Taiwan sees as its territorial waters. And the way it's been framed by people in, in Beijing is this is practice for longer blockades, which would be the message would be if you do such visits in the future, now it's going to be a four-day effective blockade, but they could be much longer blockades. Uh, so I think the military the military response has been bigger in scale than most people expected. The economic response, Ampet, very briefly, has been quite modest. And I think that it's been limited to, as of now, it's been limited to curbs on exports of fruit, fish, agricultural products, sand, which is not a big import as far as Taiwan's concerned. And I think that reflects two things. The first thing is, the situation in China domestically, the Chinese economy right now is in a very, very difficult position. In the second quarter of this year, the official GDP growth was less than 1%, which and most people think that means effectively how they massage the numbers. There was a contraction in the Chinese economy. They're in no shape right now to take punitive economic measures on a big scale that would hurt Chinese companies as well. And of course, the big, the big sort of issue is semiconductor chips on which Chinese companies are completely dependent on Taiwan for. So I think on the economic side, given all these things and given the global economic situation as well, it's been quite modest. But I think so far, the focus in Beijing has been on military response. Right. Now, speaking of the military response, you spoke about how the scale of the military drills was unprecedented. So I just want wanted, wanted you to comment on, uh, is, is the whole thing more symbolic or are there also some strategic gains? From the US point of view, I mean, I would imagine that the Pelosi visit was a symbolic visit. I don't see what strategic gains they have made. But from the Chinese perspective, if you are saying that this drill on this scale is sort of paving the way for more frequent or maybe more long-lasting military blockades in the future, you know, doing whatever you want around their airspace, their territorial waters, then that would constitute a real strategic advance or gain for China, wouldn't it? I think it's worth asking what the gains and losses are for the three parties involved, that is Taiwan, the US and China. I think for Taiwan, it's pretty clear that I would say there's a clear strategic gain for President Tsai Ing-wen in having this visit happen. Uh, It boosts Taiwan's international profile, given this huge attention you've had on the visit. And I think for her, there's a clear win here for Tsai Ing-wen. I think the the uncertain question now is as far as a negative downside for Taiwan would be in terms of its immediate security situation vis-a-vis China's deployments. So I think as far as China is concerned, as you hinted in your question as well, I think for their military, if they use this as an opportunity to more aggressively deploy in the immediate vicinity of Taiwan. And if they permanently alter that, I think that could be, as you, as you suggested in your question, one, sort of one strategic gain that comes out of it for China. At the same time, there's no question that I think the very fact that the visit went ahead, despite their warnings, and the fact that they have to do all of this, I think for sure it's something that the Xi Jinping government wouldn't want to have dealt with so close to the party congress. Uh, that's that's going to start the start his third term in October, and I think for the U.S., 
uh, it is, uh, I mean, we could talk about this, but it's hard to see what the strategic gains are, which is why I think you had lots of interventions which came out in the U.S. media suggesting that both the Biden administration, I think President Biden said so publicly as well, thought it wasn't a good time for the visit to go ahead. And you also had figures from the U.S. military saying that they felt that this really wasn't the time for the visit to go ahead. So I think if there were gains for Taiwan, for sure, especially for President Tsai Ing-wen, and possibly you could say for Nancy Pelosi as well on a personal level, it's hard to see right now how the U.S. sort of benefits out of this going forward. Right, yeah. I mean, it would seem that the U.S. has really not achieved much, whereas Taiwan has made some gains, as you pointed out, and so has China. So if China were to, say, initiate some kind of, a, to borrow from Mr. Putin, a special military operation against Taiwan at some point. Is the U.S. committed to a military response or support of some kind? Because Biden said something to that effect. He said it three times. And each time his statements were walked back by the White House. So how do you see that playing out in case there is some kind of a really military provocation on Taiwan from Chinese side? I think the answer to this, honestly, Sampath, is no one knows for sure, which is why the U.S. themselves calls it strategic ambiguity. I think that a lot of question marks in terms of whether or not they would militarily involve themselves in a potential China-Taiwan conflict. And I don't think at all it's a guarantee that the U.S. would involve itself by putting boots on the ground. I think they are obligated under the Taiwan Relations Act to provide Taiwan with material support. I think they will continue with arms sales and perhaps going forward, they may even boost the arms sales to a much higher degree. That's, of course, another sort of huge point of contention between China and the U.S. I think you, you, it's very sort of plausible to see much more stepped up U.S. military support to Taiwan. But I think the question of whether they would involve themselves directly is an entirely different one. And especially that, I mean, they're speculating here because I, I don't think there's any immediate likelihood of China carrying out a military operation of the kind that Russia did vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan. I, I, the way I, I mean, if my personal opinion is that I think there are too many risks for the Chinese leadership. Uh, I think the primary priority for Xi Jinping is to continue the, the rule of the Communist Party at home. And that, and doing so, the main thing for Xi Jinping is to ensure that the legitimacy of the Communist Party is preserved within China. And that's key to them continuing to be in power. And I think that he would think twice, three times, a hundred times before undertaking something that could very potentially undermine that legitimacy. Because I think that even the Chinese are aware, the very fact that they haven't even attempted a move like this shows that they're very aware of the big uncertainties involved. And I'm sure that the Ukraine-Russia conflict would have underlined that in terms of the unpredictability of how these things can unfold. And I don't think anyone that I've spoken to here in Beijing expects China to take a move of that sort. And they very much still think that reunification that doesn't involve military means would be their ultimate goal. Of course, now it's very hard to fathom given that most people in Taiwan, according to public opinion surveys, there fewer and fewer support the idea of unification and a huge majority want the status quo to be preserved. And actually, we should also note that very few want Taiwan to declare independence. I think most people want to preserve the status quo. I think China's hope would be to have what they saw if you go back seven, eight years when the opposition KMT was in power and you had in 2010, you had an economic cooperation agreement that brought the two economies closer. 
uh, in 2015, you had President Xi Jinping have a first ever meeting with then President of Taiwan, Ma Ying-jeou. Of course, when the KMT lost and Tsai Ing-wen's DPP came to power, all that changed. But it just goes to show, I mean, it isn't a given that the DPP will continue to be in power forever. So I think that for China, exerting its influence over Taiwan through non-military means is still the sort of focus that it follows, whether whether they look at economic ways, whether they look at what they've been doing diplomatically by isolating Taiwan, putting pressure on international organizations to not include Taiwan, to whittle down the number of countries that actually maintain formal relations with Taiwan, which is only a dozen now. And that's only because China has been pressuring, inducing many of those other countries to switch recognition. So I think you'll see more of those kind of measures rather than an outright military operation Although, of course, there's lots of speculation about that right now. Right. Reunification by non-military means. Yeah, I mean, that's been the policy so far. And that, of course, uh, brings us back to this one China policy. So how do you see this Pelosi visit sitting with the one China policy? Isn't it a direct contradiction or is it like part of the ambiguity side of the one China policy of the US? I think it reflects, as you said, the ambiguity of the one China policy that I think that both the U.S. and China can make a case. I think the U.S. case is pretty straightforward in that they've had members of Congress visit. And ultimately, that's what Pelosi is. And they've had congressional delegations over a long period of time. Uh, you had a U.S. House Speaker visit previously in 1997. But China would flip that argument around and say that, listen, the very fact that there hasn't been a U.S. House Speaker go for 25 years suggests that that the U.S. is, as Beijing puts it, quote, hollowing out the one-China policy. And I think China sees a series of steps. I don't think they see the U.S. abandoning it, but they. I think what concerns them is going back to the Trump administration. They see the U.S., in their view, redefining the one-China policy. That includes, I think, during the Trump administration's time, they had some stepped-up contact. You had people from the State Department visiting Taiwan. Trump, I think, not long after his, uh, he won the election, he accepted a phone call from Tsai Ing-wen. Again, that was quite unprecedented. So I think they saw, they see a bunch of steps that they feel going down the road are diluting the one China policy. I think that's why they also wanted to draw a line. And they felt, and I think this is an understandable sort of argument, they felt that if they weren't going to react in a big way, what they are telling the US is they are accepting this diluting of the one China policy. And you could have essentially the second in line to third most politically important post in the U.S., the Speaker of the House. If they weren't going to kick up a fuss about it, then they're essentially agreeing to to the U.S. diluting it in their eyes. So I think in that sense, in that sense, to me, it seems a little disingenuous for the surprise among some commentators that I see in the U.S. saying that, oh, why are they reacting in a big way? It is, at the end of the day, a first-of-its-kind visit after 25 years, and I think there was no way they would have reacted differently. Right. We're running out of time. So one final question. Given India's own uh, strained relations in the recent past uh, with China, especially over what's been happening across the LAC, are there any productive foreign policy options with regard to Taiwan that India can explore? I would be surprised if India would revisit what it's been doing with Taiwan at the moment. Of course, India has a one-China policy. It doesn't necessarily state it all the time, but it's quite clear in terms of the level of engagement that India has with Taiwan. I think what India has been doing and wants to do, especially as its relations with, with China have taken such a big hit over China's LAC transgressions, and especially on the economic side, where I think there's been a concerted effort by uh, the government of India to reduce 
many of its economic linkages with China. I think what they want to do is really step up cooperation and working with Taiwan in non-political domains, especially already you have a huge presence of Taiwanese companies in India. I think they would really want to scale that up. I think they want to work more with Taiwan. The Indian government's looking at strategically sensitive areas like semiconductor chips. I think in terms of education, in terms of Mandarin, education especially, they're looking at more linkages with Taiwan. I think you'll see a lot of these non-political kinds of engagement with Taiwan increase as we run into these troubles with China. Uh, But I would be surprised to see a big change or India taking a stand, which it so far hasn't, on issues such as Taiwan, Tibet, Hong Kong, Xinjiang, which India usually refrains from commenting on. And I think that it was kind of summed up, I think, when there was global attention on what was happening in Xinjiang. And at at some stage, the foreign minister Jai Shankar was asked about it. And I think his response kind of summed up the view, which was India felt it already had a full plate of issues with China on its own. And there was no and, and it didn't see a need to sort of add to that at the moment. Right. India does have a full plate of issues and it doesn't want to add to that list. Thank you so much, Anand, for joining us and sharing your thoughts and comments on the Taiwan-related controversies issues. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.